welcome to this week's Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast. I'm Dr. Peter Bagshaw, uh, Mental Health Lead at uh, NHS Somerset. And for a change today, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague. Uh, I'm David Seeley. I'm the Commissioning Manager for Adult Mental Health and Dementia for NHS Somerset. Thank you, Peter. And on the other side of the microphone is our guest today is Dr. Andrew Tresida, who will be well known to you all. And Andrew, you've got a fascinating title this week of are we human beings or human doings? So do you want to tell us a little bit about what this means? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, I've been lucky to sort of meet so many people uh, in my career as a doctor, um, both in my practice as a GP and uh, working with mental health services, working in prisons, working with NHS Somerset and elsewhere, who've led me to lots and lots of stimulating conversations about what makes us tick and how we can tick better. And the idea of the the human beings and human doings was, was given to me by a friend many, many years ago. But uh, he said, Andrew, and I was going through a very busy stage in my life. Andrew, are you a human being or are you just finding yourself a human doing? And so to unpack it really is, are we just busy and buzzing or do we have time to reflect and think? And as I've sort of thought about that more, it, it occurs to a, it occurs to a number of us that, in essence, and and this is all, this is all speculative, really, Peter and and David. This is not necessarily true fact, but these are some thoughts for people to chew over. Are we, in essence, reflective human beings, or are we task-driven human doings, or can we become task-driven human doings? And does it have to be one or the other? Can't we be both? Well, that's such a good question, because actually the answer is, of course we are both. However, we can talk a little bit more about the autonomic nervous system in a minute or two, but essentially the stress response puts us onto task-focused, target-focused, doing action mode. And when we're in that mode, we may actually forget to be still because we're busy and we're buzzing and we end up a task-driven human doing. And I'm reminded of one of our previous episodes where we talked about happiness. And one of the types of happiness was flow happiness, where we're just at the edge of what we can do and we're absolutely in the moment and not reflective at all. And that's that produces pleasure. So is are we talking about something different here? I'm really glad you've asked that because I think when we are in flow, actually we are reflecting as we go along and we are getting the wisdom and we're enjoying the experience of, of surfing the wave. The problem comes when we've got a, a long list of tasks to achieve and we just find ourselves list-driven, uh, going from task to task to task to task without time to either draw breath or to reflect and I suppose the big difference is that we have lost connection to our inner stillness at centre. We've lost connection to calm. I think that's really interesting, Andrew, and uh, actually makes me reflect on um, I'm I'm doing I'm studying at the moment towards uh, my senior leadership apprenticeship, and they gave us two assignments to do at the same time, and I found myself completely unable to think about the second one at all until I've 
done the first one. And in fact, there was a point last week where I kind of my mind just went blank and I found it sort of quite difficult to breathe. I remember all your tips about uh, breathing exercises and things sort of brought myself down from it. But I think would that be described as a moment of sort of overload or overwhelm? And how does that fit in? Absolutely. So um, you're describing um, you're describing a couple of things there, David. One is it is quite difficult to multitask and we can only really put our attention on one thing well at a time. Um, But actually, if we're on the stress response, if we've got adrenaline flowing um, because we feel under pressure, then we become task focused and task oriented. And um, the more the pressure ramps up and the more the demands on us uh, ramp up, the external demands and the internal demands, especially if we're sleep depleted or dehydrated, the, the the bigger the stress response and the more we feel pressured. And actually, the one thing we lose then, and we'll perhaps cover this in a few moments when we look at the autonomic nervous system in more depth, is we lose situational awareness. We lose inner stillness and we lose the ability to reflect and we we focus on task only. And there are four important problems once we become task driven. But Peter, I think you had something you wanted to ask. I was just going to uh, pick up on that because something I'm sure we've discussed and um, many people have seen is this stress response curve, where if you have no stress at all, you don't function that well. And then it goes up to become an optimum and then it drops off if we if we're overloaded. So are you saying that we should be further back on that curve than most of us are most of the time? Um, I think we can be in flow. We can be not cruising, but we can be doing life engaged, interested, and not effortlessly, but without personal cost when we're on the left-hand side of the top of the curve, um, somewhere halfway up it. As you say, if there are no demands, we we don't perform at all. But as you ratchet up the demands, people's performance tends to increase until a point where they've got no more to give. And you either ratchet up the demands or they start to feel unsafe and performance output actually tails off quite quite rapidly with with damage to the person that's really interesting and it actually reminds me quite a lot of like if you've got a computer particularly an older one and you've been multitasking lots of bits of software open and then you've got lots of internet explorer windows open or whatever it's suddenly at one at some point or another you're going to get the blue wheel spinning and spinning and spinning and then you're going to have to do control <laughs> delete to get out of it and it's like the computer has become overwhelmed it's trying to do too many things at once and i guess we're not that different that's absolutely right. And uh, the four problems, as you talk about spinning wheels, the four problems that are almost um, inevitable if we have focused on becoming on being task-driven human doings are wheels, ladders, holes, and tribes. Do you want to unpack that, Andrew? I've, I've got a feeling the holes will involve the brain stop ticking, won't it? Thank you, Peter. The wheel seems to be the hamster wheel of our own or other people's bidding that we find ourselves on daily, running around, not necessarily getting anywhere fast, but spending an awful lot of effort. And I'm sure some of our listeners um, feel that they have observed that at times in other people and perhaps in ourselves. So the first problem is the hamster wheel. The second problem is that in life, we often find ourselves climbing a ladder. Um, either on a career basis in the longer term or on a on a task 
basis uh, in an hourly or a daily basis or, 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 or on a function basis over a week or two. And the problem is it takes an awful lot of effort climbing the rungs of the ladder, and it isn't, it isn't half frustrating. It's so frustrating when we get close to the top of the ladder and realize it's no longer up the wall we thought it was up. I don't know if you've ever come across that, David or Peter. Definitely. Even worse, sometimes there's a snake to take us all the way back down, or at least halfway down the ladder again. So that's wheels and ladders. Now, the holes problem is that as human beings, we live life, we experiment, we have experiences, and and we do well. And sometimes we're having learning experiences and we don't get things quite right. So we sort of have to do that experience again. Uh, and sometimes we feel frustrated or hurt or a bit gloomy or or despondent and we find ourselves in a bit of a pit of despair or a, a hole of despair um, and frustration and many of us when we find ourselves in that pit of difficulties instead of trying to climb out what we do is we look for a shovel or a, or a spade to dig it deeper <laughs> in a sort of contrary way and i'm sure well i've certainly had the experience of digging myself into a hole deeper in the past and perhaps perhaps either one of you has i don't not sure I just think, think, oh, sorry, Peter. I was just thinking about the, what I was talking about earlier that I felt a little bit like I was stuck in a hole last week when I was trying to, I, I just couldn't even get the first one started. I just didn't know where to begin. And so I kind of, one of the ways I sort of dealt with that was by sort of venting to people about it and sort of, you know, really kind of, uh, I, I do suffer from negative self-talk a little bit, but I think, you know, sort of going on about, oh, it's rubbish and I'm not going to do any good. It's going to be terrible. And like you say, that's not actually, that wasn't helping me in any way, was it? In some ways, that was just digging the hole deeper, <laughs> wallowing in it. Interesting. And the fourth problem is the tribes problem. Uh, and because we're on air, I'm I'm afraid you have to have the ultra ultra clean, sanitised version. But there is a tragic tribe of of human beings who are very very short. They're under three foot tall, uh, and their ambient habitat um, is that they're living in uh, four foot six deep so they're they're rather less than a meter tall and the, the vegetation is is one meter 50 deep and um they're called the, the the where on earth are we tribe and the reason they're called the where on earth are we tribe is because because they can't see over the vegetation they spend all day running around in small circles saying where on earth are we 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 there are less less polite versions are available peter and I don't know if it's a polite or impolite version, but I uh, maybe this is a good time to to let people know that the these ideas are ones that you developed in a book that you've published. Do you want to give us a quick plug for that? Oh, no, sure. no royalties will accrue, so it's <laughs> not. Uh... No royalties will accrue, Peter, because it's a free download from the web. Thank you. And yes. um, healthandself.care is the the web address for a book on health and self care, which is written for all professionals, uh, and it's trying to share common sense. And certainly. Another problem that I've experienced, and I know you guys have as well, um, it's inevitable working in the health service, is having been on the right-hand side of that stress curve for 95% of the day, you also lose empathy with other people, don't you? You're there to help people, but if if you just have too many people coming at you, it's very hard to to keep that going. Is, is that is that a... A recognised ex experience, or is that just me being grumpy? Uh, not at all, Peter. Uh, there is a triad of emotional depersonalisation, sorry, emotional exhaustion, depersonalisation, uh, and um, 
I'm sorry, I've forgotten the third one, uh, but it's Maslach's triad uh, of uh, burnout. And essentially, they are all responses to adrenaline that we feel distant. Uh, we no longer have uh, that ability to empathize because adrenaline switches that off. Too much adrenaline switches that off. Oxytocin and endorphins are the neurochemicals that we need to help our compassion flow. Uh, and so there are very good biological reasons for it. The answers, fortunately, are not difficult to shift from human doing back to human being. But in a way, they're so simple, some of the answers, that uh, that nobody would buy them because they don't cost anything. I'm not sure if this is another version of the tribe analogy that you just made or not, but it reminded me a little bit of something, which is probably a tangential thought. I mean, there's a, an old joke about, you know, two fish are swimming through the water and one of them says to the other one, oh, how's the water? And the other one goes, what's water? You know, because you're constantly immersed and submerged in it and it, can't, it didn't even know it existed. It didn't know what that is because it's all it ever knew. It's like the, the tribe, I imagine that's all that they ever knew was that they were lost in the in the rushes, as it were. Absolutely, David. That's 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 such a good analogy. Uh, the, the one I'd heard of the same was the philosopher fish and the student fish. And the yeah. philosopher fish says, consider this ocean. And the student fish says, what ocean? Yes. <laughs> and you've tantalised us with the solutions, Andrew. Do you, do you want to tell us what they are? Well, I'd love to, really, because if we recognise that in essence, we are reflective human being with the ability to be task-driven human doing. Then we say, what nourishes reflective human being? And so um, we've talked in the past, I think, about the autonomic nervous system, which has got our engine management system, which has got two aspects. It's got the action bit and it's got the, the being bit. So we have to engage the being bit, the parasympathetic, the calm bit. And the easiest way to do that within our own bodies is actually using the breath. Now, when we're on adrenaline, when we're on action response, what happens to our blood pressure as it goes up, our pulse goes up, and our breathing rate goes up, and we become uh, breathing rapidly, shallowly, and upper chest, using our upper chest. So all we have to do to get back to a point of inner stillness, as long as we haven't got too much adrenaline running, if we've got too much adrenaline running, then just burn it off with a few star jumps or running on the spot, uh, and if we've got too much caffeine in our veins, I'm very sorry, this isn't going to work very well. But um, all we have to do is put feet flat on the floor, allow our spines to be comfortable, and using our abdominal muscles, our diaphragms, we just slowly take three slow, regular, rhythmic, calming diaphragmatic breaths. And what that does is it brings inner calm to us and it puts us back from an internal process to being a reflective human being and there are some external uh, supports as well that we can talk about in a moment but david no i thank you andrew and i really appreciate that because it it can sound trite i think sometimes to say oh it's all about the breathing but actually it's so powerful and like it really last week when i was in that moment uh, like i said i remembered your advice i've heard it many times in the podcast but i did it and it really kind of did help to center me. And I've seen it work in other people who are in a more serious state of anxiety um, as well to help calm them. And it's it's so strange. It's like the fish, isn't it? It's like you, you breathe all the time automatically. And so concentrating on it in that moment brings you into the moment. It's like a mindfulness exercise, isn't it? And it also obviously has the physical effects too, but it's so powerful. It really is. 
Uh, it is. And picking up what Peter was saying about flow, when we're breathing re rhythmically, regularly and calming, we are actually in flow with the rhythm of, of life at a, at a bigger level. Whereas when we go into defensive ego state uh, and we're anxious and distressed or we, we've, we've disconnected ourselves from that flow. So this sort of brings us to the externals, which are important, which is to notice what's going on around us, to nourish our software being. And how do you nourish your software being? Well, harmonious patterns from nature, art, music, nature, time out in nature, flowers, fields, trees, birds. Um, and aren't we lucky in Somerset just to give Somerset a plug here with our, our natural environment, with the, the Levels and the Brendans and the, the Blackdowns and the Exmoor and, and the Mendips um, and the sea, of course. And these patterns just let us slow down. And I can't remember the poet, but there was a poet who wrote, what is it uh, if we, what is life without a care? if we have no time to stand and stare. Peter, I've misquoted it. Can you help me? What is life if full of care, we have no time to stand and stare? Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure in that standing and staring that it also involves feet flat on the floor, uh, spine comfortable, and slow, regular, rhythmic, calming, diaphragmatic breaths. And Andrew, you mentioned software, uh, which I know is another... Um, idea that you have a, a another way of looking at, at, at us of software and hardware um and it's a really interesting metaphor I, i've read lots of philosophy books and yeah, through the ages people have always related human beings to whatever the the current uh mechanical whiz bang of the age is but it seems particularly relevant in uh in terms of computers especially with AI and so on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about software and hardware? David, did you want to come in first as you're our resident expert on this and have, again, written a book on the Internet of Things? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, in the book, it's all about um, the company developed artificial emotion, which is kind of like the next step of artificial intelligence. And then once the machines learn that to care or to think more widely about themselves, that's what sort of awakens them anyway. That's enough of a spoiler for that book, if anyone wants to read it. I was going to just say that, yes, Peter, you're 100% right. And it, what Andrew said before actually just made me think as well, that if we think of ourselves in terms of software um, and feeding ourselves with those external stimuli or those patterns or those things that are outside of our body or outside of our existence, that's exactly the same way that a generational uh, AI works in terms of how it learns, because they are essentially machine learning devices that um, have to be fed stim um, stimulation from outside to be able to learn, to be able to do what they do. So to, to generate uh, responses to text chats, uh, to chat prompts and things like that. So it's exactly the same way that an AI, which is a piece of software, does work. You have to feed it the external information. Otherwise, it just kind of it would never grow. It would never learn. It would never develop the capabilities that it has. So it's a very interesting analysis. That's absolutely fascinating. So our hardware would be our hardware body, blood, bones, pipes, pumps, and and, uh, and nerve impulses and things. Uh, and uh, our software would be the who we are, uh, the, the invisible personality. But actually, ancient wisdom would say that that software actually potentially can 
actually consists of an energy field and certainly south asian wisdom talks about uh, chakras as energy centers and 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 um, chinese wisdom has talked for many years about uh, meridians of information or energy flow so perhaps perhaps there is something in this software being that our anatomy and physiology hasn't really got a hand on handle on in medicine yet but but it's got so many parallels and analogies with with it and the the one thing i might try and challenge though at the risk of going down a, a philosophical rabbit hole um is the idea of the mind and the body being completely separate because unlike maybe computers the software can affect the hardware and vice versa can't it i'm so glad you said that because the the hardware and software divide is completely artificial when it comes to the human because everything is reflected in in the other bits so we were just talking now about uh, um hardware uh, being software body we were talking about uh, task driven human doings because of the autonomic response because of what's happening and so our behavior changes because our physiology changes so the who we are and the personality that we're acting through is actually behaving behaving differently because the hardware has changed and likewise we can influence the software as we have done several times already in this show by putting feet flat on the floor spine comfortable uh, three slow breaths and bringing ourselves to a point of stillness so the feedback loops are there all the time it's quite fascinating i i think is one another thing that's interesting is that um in the 21st century i think that humans are actually outsourcing some of the software functions of our body to technology so it's almost like it reminds me of that quote about i think it's like god created man in his own image it's like man can only create technology in his own in his own image and now we all carry smartphones around we have like you know essentially a sort of you know 1990 supercomputer in our pockets that we now can trust to do a lot of the things that we had to do mentally before, like, you know, recording images or sound or remembering numbers or looking, you know, knowledge, being able to access, you know, by Googling something on your phone, other search engines are available. Um, you can call up sort of all of, you know, mankind's uh, information to hand at one moment. You don't have to um, be a polymath to know all of man's knowledge because it's there for you to look at. And in some ways, I think you could argue it's probably made us stupider. <laughs> but anyway, that's probably a flippant comment, Peter. Yes, I was just thinking that what you're saying, Andrew, just pondering on that, that this isn't trivial, is it? That the the software can actually make the hardware burn out. You know, if we are human doings and running on adrenaline all the time, our risk of getting serious diseases, including uh, cancer and heart disease, are much higher, aren't they? Absolutely. Fear is a program that's running either consciously now or subconsciously in the background is so um, so handicapping to our immune system and an area I know very little about, but it makes epigenetic changes in our cells so that genes either express or don't express uh, and uh, can contribute to the onset of illness. Um, I've always been fascinated by disease, but what really fascinates me is why Let's say we've got a flu epidemic. Um, why some people are relatively unaffected, unaffected, even though they have actually caught the virus, and others are devastatingly affected. You know, what are all the factors that are going on? Nutritional, psychological, environmental. I'd come back to is it Aristotle who um was the ultimate um beer rather than doer? who said, all that I know is that I know nothing. 
And I, I think the more we learn, the, the, the more we realise we don't un understand. Absolutely. I know you like your ancient Greeks, Andrew, so I thought I'd throw that one in for you. <laughs> Absolutely. You'll, you'll correct me if I've got the wrong philosopher. Uh, no, you've done well. And our other great philosopher, of course, was uh, was Socrates. And I was on, on a campsite uh, in, in Cornwall the other day and realised that the, the weed very close to us, looking in, in, the, in the hedge, was actually that mottle-stemmed hemlock. And I thought, away from that one. Thank you very much. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, Peter, you've just made me think of something as well about that. We often we've done quite a few episodes where we covered topics around aging and age related illnesses and things. And we one of the things that kind of comes up as a golden thread is that um, staying active, both mentally and physically, can can be helpful in older age. So do you think that factors into this? Discussion? Absolutely. And lots of evidence around that, that we we age more slowly if we stay active. It, it has huge benefits um, in all sorts of degenerative diseases. I think there's increasing evidence that a lot of things we think of as being degenerative, inevitable parts of aging are actually related to inactivity, inflammation because of the wrong diet and lifestyle. And that if we we, we can uh, delay aging, I, I don't know if you agree, Andrew. Absolutely. And lifestyle would include being on the stress response because there are there are choices as to how we react at every moment. And if we choose to spend time and effort on inner stillness at several points during the day, we will be in a different state to if we if we just spend our day, our whole day, as a task-driven human doing, with the inevitable result of either a hamster wheel or a ladder that we slide back down or a, or a pit that gets deeper or a member of a tribe. So there's actually a risk that if we're too much in the human doing things uh, side of of life, we might stop being a human being a little bit earlier than we would have done otherwise. Absolutely. Um, I am actually doing, as I said, uh, a senior leadership apprenticeship at the moment. We're doing a module all about leadership. And this definitely is making me think about the difference between sort of strategic leadership and sort of operational leadership or like being in the moment. Like it's the same thing as if you're like constantly caught up in the firefighting or you know the, the the daily grind then you don't have that long vision to be able to plan ahead and to be able to change things to make things better or to keep growing i presume that's the same for individuals as well as organizations it's certainly true that there's a quadrant of urgent and important and it's so easy to be consumed by the urgent important things or the urgent but unimportant things whereas actually the long-term investment in the non-urgent but important things means that we have effective ways of fighting fires effective fire control uh, and actually we've eliminated the causes of the blazes well we're now coming to the stage of our podcast where we've got to stop doing um so david and andrew are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners over to you, David. Uh, well, no, I was just going to say, you know, Andrew, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to, to bring in at this point about it that you wanted to, because your book obviously covers a lot of ground around this area. So I don't know if there's anything key that you want to sort of leave our listeners with. Um, we'll put in the programme notes. I, I, my only published paper ever is one that's uh, that's that's got a very long title. It was published about 10 years ago. Vibrational Medicine, Allopathic Medicine, Fluorescence Use and Paradigms and Ch Challenges in Healthcare. And that's that's where we um, coined the phrase uh, hardware body and software being. 
Uh, and uh, so it, it talks about vitalism and mechanism and a whole load of other things. So we'll put that in the programme notes because that's perhaps a discussion on its own. And we talked about AI earlier as well. And I'd love to know what AI makes of some of the questions that we're answering this, asking in this question uh, in this podcast. So I might ask uh, open, you know, uh, chat GPT or something in a minute and see what they it says, whether it agrees with the humans. <laughs> and we'd also invite other people listening to this uh, to give their views as well on on the idea of doing versus being. But uh, perhaps I can I can finish with uh, the the poem that you quoted earlier, what is this life if full of care, we have no time to stand and stare? So I, I hope uh, all our listeners out there will have time to stand and stare, preferably out in nature and while the sun is shining and uh, go well. And thank you very much for being our guest. And thank you for being our, our co-host this week, David. Thank you, Peter. I don't think um, ChatGPT will ever write a poem as good as that, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Thanks both. Great to be with you. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresider, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Holmes Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board. <laughs>